So transformation is the uh, consequence of living in the divine, living for the divine, and living by the divine. It's not a um, process or a goal per se, but a natural consequence. It's a new way of being, a new mode of nature entirely. Shubindu makes it very clear it's not about some change of nature, it's not about ethical change, it's not about saintliness, it's not about uh, living by certain mental principles of life. It's a totally new way lifting the entire nature to a new way of being, to a new mode of being. And in itself to make transformation as a goal, which many times we tend to do, Shubhinda says it's not a personal goal to be pursued. It's, it's something which is in its very nature collective. It's not about transformation of one person or another person because it's very easy to get into the uh, into an egoistic mode with regard to transformation and one should be very careful about that. Uh, in fact, there can be no transformation as long as there is the ego sense there. When someone asked the mother about the supramental, she said something very interesting. She said, my child, you are so narrow, so small. How can the supramental enter? It won't find even room to enter into it. So, uh, the first thing necessary to prepare the nature for the transformation is to become vast. But it's not easy for the um, for for an ego-bound consciousness to even conceive of what transformation would be. To become vast is the first step towards living in the divine and living for the divine. Vast in the mind, vast in the heart, vast in the aims of a life, vast even in the physical consciousness. Okay, she will take care of that. So this is another kind of transformation which is <laughs> taking place on the world, <laughs> making us vast. So this vastness comes by a progressive release from the ego sense. And the method to do is, Shubhinda has spoken of these uh, three steps which come one after another. The first is concentration. The second is consecration and the third is conversion. I put it as the three C's. So concentration is the, the consciousness must be concentrated on the divine. The mind should be concentrated on the divine. The heart should be concentrated on the divine. The life energy should be concentrated on the divine. The will should be concentrated on the divine. Even the body and its activity should be concentrated on the divine. Now, this concentration uh, on the Divine is effectuated by what is called as consecration. And it is a concentration which is a, in its nature a, a, a concentration of self-giving. It's not a concentration where one is wanting something from the Divine. And the more we give, the more we are released from the ego sense. So consecration is the act which is about giving oneself to the Divine more and more. 
in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our feelings, in terms of our uh, will and its impulsions. It means not to have egoistic aims in life. It means not to have egoistic motives in our dealings with others. It means not to be moved by the ego sense in our relationship with human beings. It means not to cling to this or that mode of being, this or that thought, opinions, prejudices. Um, that's what makes us fear. And as a result of these, there comes conversion. Conversion is the uh, each part of nature naturally turns and is oriented towards the great goal, very naturally. So these three things, concentration, consecration and conversion, they prepare the being for the vaster embrace of the divine, to live in the divine. And transformation follows as a consequence of that. Another thing which uh, Shrabindu makes abundantly clear that transformation, no part of a nature has the capacity to transform itself because it's, it's very logical, it's part of ignorance. Ignorance cannot transform itself by a play of its own energies. So it cannot be done by any mental effort alone. It can be done only as an act of grace. And very naturally a question arises that then what is the role of personal effort? And personal effort is to prepare the being to receive the grace. So when we do a personal effort and we shouldn't bother about, you know, which way we are doing an effort, is it the right way or the wrong way, that's not relevant because behind the right and behind the wrong way there is the aspiration to change and that's what counts in the end. So it's not whether we sit in a particular posture and we meditate this way or that way. Um, it is what is that little feeling inside the heart with which we are making all our efforts and the divine sees that and responds to that. So Mother repeatedly speaks of one key word and that key word is sincerity. So if one is sincere, one goes through. It doesn't matter what one is doing outwardly because uh, that's why Shrabindo doesn't give uh, so many techniques. In fact, uh, he says yoga is not a technique. It cannot be reduced to a technique. To reduce it to a technique, to make it something saleable, that this is the path to transformation is just not possible. Second thing is that since uh, transformation involves the entire nature, and nature is far too complex to be reduced to a single technique, and each human nature has its own past, it has its own unique present formation. So it is not a way where each one can, you know, where anyone can say that this is the path to transformation. For each one it will happen differently. So there are as many approaches to transformation as there are people. Uh, so whatever is said on the subject is something very general. And those generalizations are one that initially the parts that are touched in transformation or by the transforming grace are those parts which are more ready. In those in whom the mind is ready, it is that which is touched. In those in whom the heart is ready, it is that which is touched. In those in whom the will is ready, it is that which is touched. And next, the transforming grace touches those parts which are kind of midway. They are yes and no about the transformation process and they get affected. And that's the stage when many people begin to feel difficulties. In the very early stages, 
since those parts are touched which are very ready so it's something very beautiful it's the uh, womb stage of the sadhana you know when one feels that one is carried by the mother all around and after the womb stage it's like you know, now the child has to grow up so it's like those parts are touched which begin to resist and uh, towards the end those parts begin to you know those layers begin to be tackled which are the strongholds of resistance and in every human being there are these unique strongholds of resistance which are like uh, fortresses of darkness and when transformation touches those layers that's the time when the real test of sincerity and integrity uh, the 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 perseverance towards the goal the endurance to move on till the end come into play and that's why the mother insists on this one thing which she says is very fundamental other than sincerity is endurance and perseverance she says victory comes to the most persevering because when the initial parts are touched it's all very easy but when those difficult layers get tackled what is called as the shadow in in a, in a human being that's when one begins to find the process is slow very slow almost like uh, you know moving an inch after a year and yet that's a great victory so this is one of the uh, things one has to one of the generalizations which one has to keep in mind um, the other thing which uh, makes transformation a slow and difficult process is uh, that as we grow in consciousness we begin to move out of the ego sense and in a sense ego sense is a kind of a protective barrier which uh, ignorance erects it's like a fence which prevents uh, us from getting into contact with the world energies at large but as the ego sense begins to break down we move into a wider circle of god and as we enter into a greater wideness we begin to be more and more exposed and open to all that is around us we in a sense become more vulnerable at another level and so each one who does this yoga at some point begins to do yoga for everybody else in a sense he begins to do in its widest sense the yoga for the earth so there is nothing like an individual victory beyond a point it's no more an individual victory it's it's a victory of the divine over cosmic nature so immediately yoga enters into a collective dimension so collective yoga is not about number of people gathering and sitting together it's not about if 1 million people join uh, you know this yoga it becomes a collective yoga even one person doing this yoga is doing a collective yoga that's how shivananda did collective yoga sitting in one room it's not even about collective meditation collective meditation is one of the means but if one person is doing sincerely this yoga he may be living alone all his life and yet if he is sincere in this path he will end up doing a collective yoga because his ego boundaries are uh, kind of loosened they lost they become porous and more and more um, there is a direct contact between nature and its wildness and the self so this is the other aspect of transformation which uh, you know one has to keep in mind and of course uh, these are the three classical steps which shobindo has said that uh, because this is a difficult and long path the very first thing that is necessary is to get in touch with one psychic being the inmost soul it is the soul 
true soul whose emergence prepares the nature for receiving the uh, higher consciousness and its touch. And if the soul has not emerged, the descent of the higher consciousness can well disturb nature. Uh, for instance, if there is too much of egoism in nature, uh, the psychic being doesn't uh, finish the ego, but it brings a fundamental humility, which is a great safety on the path. There are two safeties, sincerity and humility. The humility that uh, I am nothing without the divine, it's not humility before others. So humility that psychic being is the only part which knows that one is nothing without the divine but depends on the divine just like a child. And as long as the psychic is not immersed, one depends too much upon one's mind. And in that process, or on the vital strength to go through yoga, or on personal tapasya, and that can be very dangerous because if by chance their contact is made with the higher consciousness, it's like uh, fire entering into unprepared fields. And nature can go topsy-turvy and Ego can try to usurp the joy, the, even the peace that comes. The vital can mimic many things, which uh, you know, we have those descriptions in Savitri. And that is why uh, the first transformation that is necessary and towards which one must focus is the psychic transformation. Very often, uh, what I have seen, people get into a mode that you know straight away one can work upon the body cells and transform the physical, uh, it is uh, nothing but the ego and a dangerous ego at that because uh, uh, it's not my body being transformed. As long as that sense is there, one cannot even take one step. Uh, the Divine Mother who has shown us the way, who uh, at that stage being the avatar herself, uh, she has the humility, you see only Divine can have that humility that she says, it does not matter whether it is this body or any other body. She says, it is the work to be done. So, to that extent one has to be humble and this cannot come unless the psychic has prepared the nature. So, to believe that one can do away with uh, all the other stages of yoga, the necessary purification, the psychic change, uh, is to really live in a kind of a um, kind of a fantasy world. So the first step is the psychic transformation. And what psychic transformation done, does to us, what are the signs of the psychic change are very beautifully described in several places in Shrivinder's works. Uh, my personal favorite is lines from Savitri where after the psychic change, what happens to nature, he has described that the immortal thoughts replace earth's drab idea and sense. So very naturally the thoughts that begin to arise in us are thoughts which uh, climb up towards the sun. Uh, all that drab and dull round of thoughts to which, in whose grip we live uh, are displaced. Our bounded sense-bound view is displaced and we begin to see and think with another sense. Similarly, uh, what happens at the level of the feelings? So at the level of feelings, uh, very beautifully he describes that uh, each feeling begins to mirror a sacred joy and all emotions gave themselves to God. You know, one doesn't expect uh, 
anything from anyone in this world because one knows that it is only the divine who can fulfill us and that gives a tremendous release from subjection to the ego sense it gives us a great joy and delight because everyone whatever comes to one from any source outwardly comes from the divine so one meets the divine touch everywhere and rejoices in his presence so you know at the level of emotion this happens what happens at the level of the speech Uh, what happens at the level of the will so speech becomes an act uh, a natural rhythm of the divine expressing itself into this world and uh, at the level of the will he says something very beautiful that once a loose republic of need and wants uh, you know the blind erring government of life is replaced by a calm and conscious divine control so this will normally is at the mercy of needs and desires actually desire is not will it is a distortion it in fact it eats away the will it perverts the will instead of the will will is something very strong and powerful it's given to man to ascend but desire eats it away and throws it into many channels and thereby it, it diminishes it's a perverter of the will but Uh, as our will turns towards the divine as the psychic chain proceeds only one will is le- left and that will is to find to rejoice in the divine to find the divine to think of the divine to meditate upon the divine it's no more an effort it's a natural process because uh, that's what the will climbs towards it becomes one pointed and shubhendra says that to become one pointed is the main thing in yoga Uh, as long as one is not one pointed one will have difficulties one will get blows one will have all the forces in the world arrayed against the yoga and they also conspire to hasten the process because they make us one pointed so this is the psychic change and even uh, then he speaks about what happens in those nether parts what happens to the lower vital so the lower vital is full of ambitions and pride and vanities so what happens in its place it becomes an instrument for god's work in the world so only one will remains at that level that i want to work for god i want to serve him in whatever way i can in whatever small way big way doesn't matter i want to serve him so this is how the change goes and once nature is prepared by the psychic uh, change then it becomes ready for that vastness so this wideness and vastness is not a mental wideness so mental wideness is necessary but the true wideness comes by our ability to see the divine behind everything that is the true wideness so wideness is not about getting into a, a lot of you know gathering information from here there and everywhere there is a misconceived idea of wideness that wideness is oh uh, i am not only confined to shurbindo i read this also i read that also and i have read everything and i am not narrow it's not about being uh, not narrow minded in that sense it's the ability to see the divine behind everything and that wideness only comes when nature comes in contact with the divine so in savitri we have this very beautiful map that the whole yoga of savitri is given essentially what man has to do ashapati's yoga is what the avatar does for earth whereas savitri is yoga is given for us what we have to do so the first is the psychic change where we have almost 
four or five cantos dedicated to that, because that is the most important change. After that, there are two cantos, as if it rapidly summarizes. After that, it's the the, the nirvana and then the cosmic consciousness. And once one has entered into the cosmic consciousness, once one sees this entire nature as a playfield of the Lord, once one sees all these forces and beings and energies and their conflicts and crisscrossings and their meanderings and their losing and finding simply as a vast field of the Lord's action and whatever comes within one's field, whether from in or out that you know, loses its boundaries, one keeps on offering it to the Lord, then, you know, one is on the royal road to transformation. The final change, of course, comes when every trace, every everything that hides even in the subconscious nature is lifted out and offered at His feet so that He alone can reside within, without, that distinction goes away everywhere. That boundless oneness, one begins to dwell in that. Uh, I think I'll read a little, uh, you know, something from Savitri uh, on that part. That's a very beautiful passage. It is there in Ashupati's Yoga. And it's very powerful about that transformation which is necessary for the new creation. So, it is the first condition for the new creation. This on page 318, the book of the Divine Mother, the house of the spirit and the new creation. And this is the uh, last part and which shows us what we, what is the direction in which we have to grow and how sincere we have to be. And as we proceed on the path of transformation, even those elements which hide the subterfuges, which are hidden within the coat of light, you know, uh, they take various forms and voices, all this is described here. And how Ashupati is face to face, confronts those subconscious parts and how he deals with them. So this is kind of the, uh, those final processes, but the direction in which we have to grow. In the texture of our bound humanity, he felt the stark resistance, huge and dumb. This is page 317. Ashupati sees the resistances in the subconscious nature which resist the transformation. And they are like uh, slippery grains, they are like dark pockets in our nature. And he is face to face to tackle with them before he can even hope for the new creation. He felt the stark resistance, huge and dumb, 
of our inconscient and unseen base, the stubborn, mute rejection in life's depths, the ignorant no in the origin of things, everything in us that says a no. And the beauty of man is that not only the superconscious whispers to him, he, the inconscient has also been given a voice in human beings. So at, at the level of the mind, every time a doubt crosses, it is the inconscient stubborn no. At the level of the heart, every time a feeling comes, no, it's not possible. It's the inconscient speaking to, to us. At the level of the will, whenever there is a sense of giving up, it's nothing but the inconscient resistance. So inconscient resistance is not only about some blind depth. Inconscient has become semi-conscious in man. And that's the problem. So the stubborn, mute rejection in life's depths, the ignorant know in the origin of things, a veiled collaboration with the night, even in himself survived and hid from his view, still something in his earthly being kept its kinship with the inconscient whence it came. The very fact of taking a human body is to take up a load of the inconscious. And that is why great saints who have even risen to great heights have not spoken of transformation. Because in the way, there is something in the very nature of life which says no, it's not possible. So that's where now you know we have to uncover it. And a shadowy unity with a vanished past, treasured in an old world frame was lurking there. So it's a process which takes place again and again. And what should be our attitude uh, to this kind of a return of, uh, you know, things again and again, which we think have gone from our nature. In one of Shervinda's poems, Meditations of Mandavya, uh, as we know, Mandavya was a great Rishi and he was a Rishi uh, along the evolutionary lines. So he wanted to change nature. He wanted to change the laws of nature. And one of his meditations, Shurabindu writes, is, Lord, I have a thirst, and the thirst presupposes water somewhere. (laughs) And then he says, but maybe in this life I may never find. Are there not hundreds left behind? Old nature sits a phantom on the way. The past returns, a ghost like a ghost it chases us. But then he ends up by saying, but there is a thirst. I shall persist, O Lord. I mean, that should be the way to keep persistent persevering. It is bound to come again and again because it's millions of years of work of nature and it cannot be undone in a day. And it cannot be undone individually because it's not one person's nature. That's the ignorant view. That's my nature. But there is nothing like my nature. It's universal nature which acts. And therefore, the moment you touch one point of nature, every other point which is linked to it cracks and crumbles and stands against you. So that's why transformation... Unfold this more. Yeah, we'll come to that. We'll just finish it, then we'll touch that point. So we'll end up with this line from Savitri. A shadowy unity with a vanished past, treasured in an old world frame, was lurking there. Secret, 
unnoticed by the illumined mind even an illumined mind fails to notice it because it's it's a kinship with an old past the way the nature has been for millenniums and millenniums very spontaneously it is there and in subconscious whispers and in dream still murmured at the minds and spirit's choice that's why mother says why it is so necessary to have a control over a night and our dreams because in one night we can undo many days of effort that's the stronghold of the subconscious and that's why many times we sleep with a you know the day has been with very nice aspirations but but we get up in a very different state altogether and um, so so much can be undone that is one of the strongholds of resistances still murmured in the minds and sp- at the minds and spirit's choice its treacherous elements spread like slippery grains hoping the incoming truth might stumble and fall and old ideal voices wandering moaned and pleaded for a heavenly leniency to the gracious imperfections of our earth and the sweet weaknesses of our mortal state this what we say but after all i am human and human i must be and we cover up all these with so many sweet words no no it's okay this is allowed this is fine purification is all fine but that is old yoga or old ideas can attract us and give a new voice no no transformation cannot be now mother and shobindo are no more there in the physical body it is postponed it is delayed it's much better you know see bhaj govindam is so nice and you know you know one can easily old ideals attract again and again because yeah it doesn't want the transformation and in so many ways it can come and look at these lines heaven's leniency mm-hmm. this much is fine this is tolerable after all this is okay so mm-hmm. yeah this whole idea of you know yeah. this is human so this is how mm-hmm. it 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 seeks and the sweet weaknesses of our mortal state this now he will to discover in exile the element in him betraying god all natures recondite spaces were stripped bare this is what we have to do and this is what happens it's not that we can do it the mind cannot detect but this happens the first level of stripping bare is when the soul the psychic being strips bare so what the psychic being does it first makes the crooked straight so all the crooked motives which are hiding and putting the garb of straightness divine work good work nice work and behind it that ambition and those little things seeking this and that the psychic lays bare the upanishad that is described is that which makes the crooked straight but then what happens many of the instincts they hide in the subconscious they become refugee instincts so they don't show up before the psychic the moment psychic comes they just you know quietly hide in the subconscious dusk so uh, psychic transformation helps but it's not it cannot complete the process then the spiritual light the spiritual uh, bliss the spiritual peace uh, the joy of the higher regions the light of intuition and the light of illumination begin to descend they begin to show us 
the hidden resistances. So that is the next step, the spiritual transformation. So it's not only about receiving joy and peace. It's also seeing its very opposite. The more the joy descends on one side, the tops of nature begin to experience joy as never before. On the other side, the whole panorama of suffering begins to climb up from life in the depths. It's not only about peace that descends, it's all that resists the peace that also rises up. So that is the second step of the spiritual transformation. And then of course, when this has happened several times, then the supramental transformation, here it is that which is being spoken, the very last stages, where refugee instincts and unshaped revolts all her dim crypts and corners searched with fire, where refugee instincts and unshaped revolts could shelter find in darkness a sanctuary. So we should not be disheartened when we see difficulties in us. That's what the mother says. Many people, you know, feel, oh my God, I went on the path of transformation. What is this I am discovering inside me? Anger and jealousy and all these things, you know, are they there inside me? So she says, on the contrary, we should be happy that we have found something which needs to be changed and offer them to the purifying fire. Against the white purity of heaven's cleansing flame, all seemed to have perished that was undivine, yet some minutest dissident might escape, and still a center lurk of the blind force for the inconscient too is infinite. The more its abysses we insist to sound, the more it stretches, stretches endlessly. So it's not going to give way so easily. That's what is partly, you know, answers that uh, query that the more we touch it, the more the resistance rises, rise, rise. Till finally a point comes and it gives way. Even in later on in the yoga, the more Savitri and death travel, you know, death takes her from grey areas to darker and darker realms. And the beauty is, the greater the darkness towards which death takes her, the more the avataric aspect and the light of Savitri becomes more and more stronger. So actually these are meant to make us grow in our consciousness. So first the Divine gives us easy problems to solve and uh, we, we think we have solved it and we are very happy. So he says, fine, very good. And we say, ah, I can take rest. So he says, no, 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 don't come. There is a greater problem to solve. And we solve that and we think very nice. Now at least I am on the royal road. He says, wait my child. Now for the high school examination. And then we say that, okay, at least this one I have passed with good marks. So he says, no, 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 wait. <laughs> you have the three-year degree course. So, you know, it goes on till like, you know, Kundan, you are in PhD. And even then, <laughs> there is no end. <laughs> so there is no end to this. And it's a joyous work at another level. Because, you know, it's about, that's why, you know, it's about working for the divine in this world. So there is a great delight in that. The more its abysses we insist to sound, the more it stretches, stretches endlessly. Then, lest a human cry should spoil the truth, he tore desire up from its bleeding roots and offered to the gods the vacant place. So this is the final act, tore desire up from its bleeding roots. 
Thus could he bear the touch immaculate. Then he says, a last and mightiest transformation came. His soul was all in front like a great sea, flooding the mind and body with its waves. His being spread to embrace the universe, united the within and the without. You know, then one lives in the constant sense that all is the divine. All this, but it's not a, uh, you know, losing the distinction. There is another kind of all is the divine when the mind takes that as an idea and says, oh, all is the divine, so anything that I do, and any, any way that I can go through is the divine. It doesn't matter what I do. That's It's not in that sense. One sees the entire process of divine becoming, the divine building up, destroying, building up, destroying, and leading things, rebuilding them towards greater and greater becomings. So, the within and the without, his being spread to embrace the universe, united the within and the without, to make of life a cosmic harmony, an empire of the imminent divine. In this tremendous universality, not only his soul nature and mind sense included every soul and mind in his, but even the life of flesh and nerve was changed and grew one flesh and nerve with all that lives. He felt the joy of others as his joy. He bore the grief of others as his grief. His universal sympathy abhor immense like ocean, the creation's load, as earth upbears all being sacrifice, thrill with the hidden transcendent joy and peace. There was no more division's endless crawl, one grew the spirit's secret unity, all nature felt again the single bliss, there was no cleavage between soul and soul. There was no barrier between world and God. So this happens, so this whole process is not a process, uh, you know, it may look like a very difficult process, but it's full of delight because then you are living with that constant sense that it is He who is working and you offer your nature constantly as a sacrificial ground for the great fire to burn and illuminate it and change it and that's what is vastness. We started with that, that the very first thing for transformation is to become vast, to loosen the ego sense, to live in the soul, to live in the divine, to live for the divine and to live by the divine, to live in the constant sense of the Divine Presence. That's what one must aim for. The rest will be a natural consequence. And to rely more and more on the Mother's grace and the Mother's power, because as he says, there is no human power or tapasya that can rend the will, uh, that can rend the veil and shape in this vessel anew 
the life divine, the immortal sadhana, it's not possible for any human effort. It is only by the grace and all effort, behind all effort stands the grace. And it is grace alone that can fulfill or grant this great poem to earth. So I think that's uh, more than what <laughs> I just thought of. But we can have some kind of interaction. You all know these things. Nothing new <laughs> is there in the life to buy and synthesis and everywhere is there. Yes, the collective sadhana that you were talking about, you know, like where I said that you feel and fold this more. Yes, the collective yoga truly begins when we begin to move out of the shell of the ego. As long as we are in the ego and if we try to think of collective work, we will often spoil the work rather than really being of any help. <laughs> True collective work begins when the shell of the ego begins to break. Because then what you do is, by your mere presence you do collective work. Because everything that comes cosmic consciousness as we begin to enter, very naturally the field of consciousness in which we dwell begins to enlarge. And within that field, all that is within and around that field begins to enter into you as streams, as currents. And since it enters into you, you have to do something about it. And since what what is that you do, you keep calling grace, you keep offering it. And whatever is received into you spontaneously, because now the channels are open, spreads to all that is around you. So that's the right way of doing collective yoga. Rather than pointing fingers at others and telling you should do this and you should do that way and you should change and you must be like this. That's not collective yoga. It's not a jamburi of people getting together and, you know, uh, playing a game and uh, sitting for meditation and reading together. All these are good and useful activities, but we should not uh, live under the, you know, uh, illusion that it is collective yoga. They are good activities, they strengthen the flame, sometimes they can strengthen weaknesses. Mother has spoken of that. One should be very careful. So it can work both ways. I mean, if you, for instance, sit together and read uh, and share something beautiful together, it's fine. But very often it can turn into a socialization and a kind of a um, social trip, a release for the vital. So, yeah. So, in the ashram, which you know, Shivendra gave this collective yoga, but you can imagine there was a point of time when. Even to receive something from another person, you had to ask the mother's permission whether you can take it or not. And there is a famous example of Pavitrada, where somebody wanted to give him tomato soup and he asked the mother. And mother said, this time you can take, but tell him not to bring it next time. Now one could wonder, what is there in tomato soup? And who could be doing more collective yoga than Pavitrada, who every night used to go out, uh, you know, in that boat and uh, all these people used to carry and go around the world seeing the condition of the world. That Pavitrada and on other side. So this is, this collective yoga is not about a group of people. 
In fact, there are no people. The moment we did the fundamental release from the ego sense. If there are people, then there are masks. That means we are still looking at masks. We are still hypnotized by surface and appearances. The very first thing one has to discover is that there is the divine self in all beings. And if this fundamental thing has not come, then the rest is still a very far and long way. The only thing is that when you are in a group, uh, to an extent you are, uh, your ego gets rubbed and chipped and then you, you know, if you take the right attitude, then you can end up discovering the divine in everything, in all the mass. So to that extent it can help. So isolation in that way is not advised that shut yourself in a room because then one may get locked in one's mental formations. But so one should be with the world because world is a very good training ground for the consciousness. But that's not about collective yoga. That's a training given to the ego to get chipped off, to rubbed off, to see the divine in all beings. So that is uh, it's meant for that rather than as part of the collective yoga. Yeah, this is very helpful because you know in certain in certain conditions, um, certain emotions and certain feelings and certain things you know would come into my being which usually are very, very alien, you know, it's like, I don't get afflicted by them. So I would wonder, you know, it's like, where is this coming from? Instead of, fortunately, till that point in time, you know, I was not thinking that it can be coming from, you know, from other sources also. I was thinking that, you know, why is it that it is happening within me? In fact, you reach a point where there is no other. Yeah. It's all a movement of single nature. So, uh, everything that enters into you have to offer, it doesn't really matter. And everything comes from outside in one sense. And in another sense, all is one. So, there is no, nothing like outside me, because all nature is conterminous with everything else. You know, it's, it's one ocean. And uh, I stand in a particular point and see a few waves around me and say, this is myself. It's like we build a house over this land and say, this is my house. But then the land is one, you know, this is, for convenience sake it is given to me to work within this area because it's easier to clean a small little area than to clean the whole city. But then a time comes when you have to take the Herculean task of cleaning the Aegean stables and that's what it means. One of the tasks given to Hercules was to clean the Aegean stables and that's cleansing the subconscious because it's impossible to clean unless you bring the stream down. That's what he does. He just simply diverts the uh, stream and, you know, in one go the entire stable is cleaned. So, also, if we take that point, you know, where things come from outside, there is something within us which uh, answers to the touch. So, if we take that way, there is something within that answers to the touch. And so one has to keep on working on that rather than... Otherwise in this world you breathe poison. As Mother has said, by the very fact that you are around, you can't help it. It's the very nature of... Uh, in fact, he says, even a being who is free, when he takes a human body, he has to struggle. Because taking the human body means you are plunged into inconscience. So by that very fact, it, you have to struggle to rise up to, you know, that's why 
till now the ideal was to get free from this zone because that's the ideal which was highest which was given but uh, well obviously that is an imperfect and an incomplete ideal and there are souls with a greater calling who are not satisfied with this kind of an ideal so shubhendu gives us this new possibility सिंपथी but sympathy is a movement of the ego a sattvic ego that we sympathize with those whom we have a preferential interest the ego takes a preferential interest like if something happens to my people their sorrow becomes my sorrow and if they are happy i feel happy now this this is there when the ego extends beyond itself to include other egos so at a human level it happens uh, but this is not only about the sattvic ego it's because the shell of the ego breaks therefore the others joys and sorrows invade us very naturally and to that extent we become vulnerable but equally we are supported with a much greater delight from behind and that's what shrivinda says in one of the letters that it's only because of the delight of the divine that i can bear the load that i am bearing and all who are called to share this load and that is why he insists that first thing is to get that bedrock otherwise one will break down so if one starts working on nature and starts you know trying to change nature by some mental methods it doesn't work it has to be from within outward and that's why he says the first thing is for the surface being to come in contact with the divine reality and to shift inward the you know the outward thing of nature but this inward shift cannot take place unless the surface being comes in contact with the divine reality and there he gives the three methods the way of the mind the way of the heart and the way of the will and the way of the mind leads to an impersonality the way of the will towards you know our will uniting more and more with the master of uh, works uh, and of course the shortest way the way of the heart by process of self giving where we discovered not only an impersonality but the supreme personality uh, behind everything and then the journey becomes very beautiful because see the problem of only the mind's approach is you end up constantly entering into a vaster and what vaster impersonality whereas when you go through the way of the heart the first thing you discover is that the master is always with us and then it doesn't matter even if you are you know you fall into a crevice he's there with us so you know you know that i am not alone and you know that makes the journey so much more delightful um then you discover you know what shrivinda says in one of his poems even though they who sing where do they sing into his breast he who to some gives victory joy and good to some gives rest so when that sense is there and as the mother says my child when you sing i don't stand on the shore i go down with you now when of course that is the divine side of the story but then that becomes our side of the story as well that yes when i go down she is there with me that makes the whole journey so much more delightful so on one side you are very vulnerable but if that realization is there as a background support 
then you just get up, brush your pants and walk. Look at your, you know, divine beloved and hold his hands and walk. So it's it's very important as uh, in the very beginning to focus on that. Then later on other things are easy. Uh, but if for some reason, uh, usually because of some strong vanity in nature and because of excessive reliance on one's own efforts rather than dependency on grace, you know, the human mind, especially modern mind, tends to become too secular in its approach and would uh, do away with every idol and every form. You know, there are people who would even say, oh, Shivan and the mother are not necessary, now we have the force and, you know, it's something. <laughs> now, this can be very dangerous because we don't know what force, we don't even know the difference between vital force and mental force and physical force. <laughs> Leave alone supramental. So, one can very well, and force is force, you can't relate with the force. So the danger there is that if by some means we draw and pull, and mother used to say that uh, give yourself, do not pull the force. And if one tries to do sadhana like that, that okay, I'll sit in meditation, I'll pull the force. I don't have to make surrender to Shurabindra and the mother. I'll pull the force and I'll make a surrender to it. So mother says 99% of the time you pull a vital force. And that is dangerous. And if by chance you happen to pull 1% of the time something of the higher consciousness, you break down. Because the shell breaks and you are invaded by all kinds of things and you are in a, enter into a mass of phenomena, what is called as the intermediate zone, where you lose all moorings and bearings. So that is why again so much insistence on the psychic transformation. Once that takes place then, you know, well, you discover the new poise. The new poise is that all nature is one and you are playing with the divine in that role. It's just that your playground has become a playground of the infinite. So that new poise is spontaneously developed when the ego sense changes and you shift inside. But it's a matter of experience, isn't it? Absolutely true. It's and a matter of experience. That may take many lives probably because uh, yes. sometimes you... Uh, you realize this thing, but uh, it does not last long. Yes. Uh, Sometimes psychic being comes in front for a few days, you feel extremely good yes. and then again yes. you go down and... Uh, so yes, how yes. does that experience sustain? Yes, that, that is because there is a division in nature, obviously, and one has to keep on growing more and more sincere. And one method to grow sincere is, there are several steps towards that. One is never to, uh, you know, deceive oneself. Uh, not to cover up our problems, defects, weaknesses with beautiful explanations. The mind can always find explanations, not to let anything hide behind in subterfuges, to give justifications, you know, to build those bridges. Look at things stark as it is. Well, I have ambition, I have ambition. As stark as that. Not cover it up with nice, beautiful things, you know. Um, no, no, this is justified, that is justified. And people have gone to absurd extent. Even there are people who, you know, do all kinds of human relation and say, no, no, I am Satyavan and she is Savitri and all kinds of nonsense people enter into. Now, that is a gross deception. But, you know, deception can be very subtle. And one has to very, one can say that, well, I feel human love and human attractions and, well, I have to get over it. Now, that's honesty. The next step is to whatever uh, little effort one can do in that direction, whatever way, of course, true rejection only happens when the soul power comes in front. But even with a, you know, whatever will one has, one tries to reject. 
well, it will be very imperfect. So the third and most important is expose that part in threadbare detail before the divine. Mother, these are the movements that rise within me. And then to expose them again and again and persevere. Now, as to lives, it is true and Mother and Sri always said that it is going to take a few centuries even for the transformation of consciousness. The final supramental change and the transformation of the body, she said, wait for a thousand years, then we will talk about it. That's what she has said. So, uh, we should always remember we are on a thousand year old project and it's a very big company which is growing bigger and bigger. <laughs> In the sense, it's a divine company. More and more earth will come under the supramental influence. And uh, she has given us work for at least a thousand years, maybe for 2000, 2500 years. The other side of it is instead of that discouraging us, many times people discouraged, get discouraged because again we are living so much bound by one life's personality which hypnotizes us. Instead of that if we can look at it, oh, I have thousand years of service to her, hmm. then the whole poise changes. She is not going to forget me, I mean. Uh, why not? Uh, after all, if we could be monkeys and serve Rama, if we could be by the side of Christ when he came and struggled, if we could be by the side of Krishna and lift, uh, you know, those uh, lattes and believe we are lifting the Govardhan. <laughs> so we don't mind a few centuries and maybe as many times, see, once we have that sense that it is divine who is struggling in matter, how can we even think of resting content when the one whom we love is struggling in that. So there is a great delight in that service and that thousand years appears to us uh, as a journey of delight. It's not that we, would, we should say let it be late ad infinitum, but I mean you know that it is the divine who is there, it's his play and we are so lucky and fortunate that he has uh, for no merit of us actually for some mysterious grace which we don't understand, but we just trust that he won't be wrong <laughs> in his choice. He has called us to this play. And if he has called us to this play, we should be delighted in that. This play may take long. And again, the other way to look at it is that, well, millions of years we have waited for this moment. It has come. What is another few thousand years? There is a beautiful poem of Sri Krishna in which he says, At last I find a meaning of soul's birth into this universe terrible and sweet. I who have felt the hungry heart of earth aspiring beyond heaven to Krishna's feet. Nearer and nearer now the music draws all nature shudders with a strange felicity. All nature is a wide enamored pause, hoping its Lord to touch, to clasp, to be. And then he writes those punchlines. For this one moment lived the ages past. The world now throbs fulfilled in me at last. So when we know that great felicity that awaits, when we know the immense struggle uh, after which from the inconscience 
you know, matter has been pulled out of that and led up to this point, then it's just a few more steps. And, and those few more steps are also with him. So it's a great choice. And it's bound to be like that. It cannot be in one go because there are refugee instincts, there are subterfuges, there are all kinds of things which are hiding. There are shadows and shadows and shadows. And as we just read that it's not just an individual shadow. It's the whole cosmic shadow. Even if one has to die a thousand times, it is dying for the sake of divine. What greater joy can there be to be uh, to fall while being on Rama's side than to live in Ravana's safe Lanka because one day or the other it is going to come down crashing. Much better to fall fighting for the Lord. It is a great joy in that. That attitude only the psychic can take. Ego cannot take. That's why in this yoga one cannot turn with an ego sense. The very idea of being supramentalized is not to be entertained. Shabindu says at one point that one should not come to this yoga with the idea of being a superman or a great yogi or anything like that. Or a sannyasi or a guru or a tapasvi because you see as long as that is the idea it's the ego which is speaking. And ego will take us how far? At the first point that the resistance comes, you say, oh, I thought it was just a few steps away. <laughs> of course, uh, one starts, but sooner or later one should keep on moving towards that and forget everything else. That should become the one occupation and the preoccupation of the being, to just unite with the divine. The rest follows as a consequence. See, when mother was asked uh, after 56, in 1958, I think for the first time she spoke about it, when somebody asked how many years is it going to take, the transformation. So the mother said that Shurabindo um, repeatedly told about 300 years. Uh, so we'll wait and see. And then the person asked 300 years for what? For the supramental, because the person expected in 300 years the whole supramental transformation of the body will change and supramental beings will appear in luminous body like Steven Spielberg's movie Cocoon. <laughs> so, so she said, <laughs> what? She says for the supramental transformation of the body, wait for at least a thousand years then we will talk about it. <laughs> she said, three, then the person asked them 300 years for what? She said, about the transformation of consciousness. Even for the consciousness to be supramentalized. And that is why she spoke of the intermediate species, which is already active on earth. That is the superman consciousness, which is the link between this uh, human and the supramental uh, race. The, the human is human consciousness or a animal human consciousness in a human body. The superman is a greater consciousness in a human body. Now what will happen when a greater consciousness enters the human body? It will begin to feel it as a prison. More and more children are coming which feel a sense of being imprisoned. 
Pune narrow mold. Now, they would like to free. So they will come up with all kinds of new things in this world. The massive barrier breakers of this world and wrestlers with destiny in a list of will, the laborers in the quarries of the world, lips chanting an unknown anthem of the soul, bodies made beautiful by the spirit's light. Their tread one day shall change the suffering earth and justify the light on nature's face. Even as man came of old behind the beast, this being greater than man, the superman too must come. So superman is uh, a greater consciousness but entering into the narrow mold. So what will happen, he will feel the sense of conflict, struggle all the time because he is carrying some very greater idea, a greater light. And this will be the painful transition which will carry on for a few hundred years and many intermediate beings will come. Mother has spoken about many intermediate beings who will come in this process. And um, then eventually, maybe few centuries, 300, 500, or maybe 200 years, it gets accelerated. The consciousness will be free entirely from the ego mold. And within one will know the divine. But the body is still there. Then it will work upon this massive project of the supramental change of the very body and its substance, which is another few hundred, because after all this mold is not... At least it will happen for a section of humanity, which will reach the tipping point. It doesn't mean every human being will be working like that. And the sign of that is very beautifully described in House of the Spirit and the new creation that one will no more live as an ego and no more deal with others as an ego. Each will become the self and space of all. Each works for everyone. That state we are still very far from realizing. Even in Shobindo's work, we bring the ego and we work for ourselves and my idea and my way of looking at it. But these are only natural things. One should not be disheartened because it's only natural. Human beings are what they are. I mean, we live in that sense and we naturally act according to that. Divine knows it and grants us that. Few hundred years. That's what it is. But we don't know it, maybe much faster. The way the work is going is much faster. Mm-hmm. Much faster. But what about all the uh, disharmony and fights which are going on in the world in the name of religion? Yeah, Why they, is it not going away? They, so ex- they are accelerating the process because before departing, things are brought to light and all these are buried in the human subconscious. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, at least as a child I remember that um, there was a constant subconscious discord between uh, a Hindu would not, you know, take food in a Muslim's place. You know, it was there. Uh, even when you had a Muslim friend, your friend and fine, but you know, you won't go and take food. It was that. But outwardly there was friendship, what was called as Dua Salam and you know, like your... Then, and vice versa was also true, you know, there was such a hatred and enmity, but riots were there. And one day, you have the entire Babri Masjid collapses. I'll give you an example of how the divine works. Now the fallout is all kinds of uh, ideas and thoughts and uh, what has happened in the human consciousness, something has been attacked, which stood as a symbol of 
स्ट्रांग होल्ड ऑफ रिलीजन सो ह्यूमन कॉन्शियस गोज टू फेज ऑफ इंटेंस चर्निंग ऑल काइंड ऑफ आइडियाज नाउ पीपल इवन आर थिंकिंग दैट वॉट शुड कम अप इन इट्स प्लेस सो सम पीपल सेड ए राम मंदिर सम अदर सेड नो बाबरी मस्जिद सम सेड वी शुड मेक अ प्लेस ऑफ टॉलरेंस एंड फेथ यू सी इट्स इंटरेस्टिंग दैट बिकॉज इट गेट्स डिमोलिस्ट ह्यूमन कॉन्शियसनेस बिगिन्स टू कन्फ्रंट द प्रॉब्लम सिमिलरली विथ टेररिज्म नाउ सडनली ह्यूमन बींग्स कन्फ्रंट द प्रॉब्लम ऑफ रिलीजन सो वेन इट कन्फ्रंट्स बिकॉज ग्रेटर बींग्स आर गोइंग टू कम विथ ग्रेटर एंड ग्रेटर कॉन्शियसनेस दे विल एंड अप फाइंडिंग नोबल सोल्यूशन सो वन सोल्यूशन पीपल हैव स्टार्टेड डूइंग इज इंटरफेस डायलॉग्स विच आर ऑब्वियसली जस्ट द ईगोज अटेम्प्ट The problem was always there. Now we are painfully becoming aware, as you have said. Earlier, we were happily rejoicing. You know, it's like what happens to an individual when you do yoga. You start with the feeling, "I am very good." Everybody else, oh, world must change, world must change, world must change. Everybody should change, and you feel this person doesn't change, that doesn't change, right? It starts like that. Then after a while, you begin to see, "My God, it's all inside me. It's not about others." things which you took for granted and you felt you are very fine you are you are doing mother's work and you are enthusiastic running here and there in the center doing activity and all these you know people do visiting the ashram and they are so unconscious of their own you know ego strong ego and one is very happy one is deluded into believing that one is doing divine work then suddenly one day the attention is turned inward by blow or whatever then one begins to see oh my god i am this i was doing this i was indulging in this then what happens you become painfully aware of that in which earlier we were happily rejoicing and that is the passage humanity is a collectivity is passing it is becoming painfully of aware of that of in which it was happily rejoicing so we have already taken the first step the next step is we begin to reject and find new solutions and that also it's very nice that today today's children are free of it, the trappings of religions i mean most of the children today they they are not religious minded in that sense they like today it's becoming difficult to say what is secular and what is spiritual so it's it's in a way very nice that all the old values in one stroke have gone away and she in shobindo one of the early letters he writes in one letter he says it took 10 years for the mother and me to wipe away the entire past of the earth and somebody asked shobindo should not we pick up good things from each and you know create uh, a new shobindo says i have myself found that method not very useful so uh, i would like to do away with the whole thing completely and create a new so that's what is happening today that done away with the whole thing completely you see today's children are so free from all the things which i mean this generation and even i mean to an extent my generation or uh, definitely the previous generation came as a heavy load today's children are free very spontaneously and automatically and so it's just a question of as you said a few decades not even few centuries that man will be free from the clutches of both non religion and uh, anti religion both <laughs> i mean free of all the um, trappings and the true seeking is uh, on the one side this is happening on the other side true seeking is being born in everywhere and in every religion the true seekers are coming to the forefront and they want to understand the deeper side 
whether of Christianity, of Hinduism, uh, well, of maybe Islam, Buddhism, that side is people are seeking. And whatever doesn't allow that seeking will perish. That is, there's that prophetic lines in Shubhendra's poem, In the Moonlight, where he says, The old self perish, it shall be wiped away, expunged, annihilated, blotted out, and all the iron bands that ring about, man's wide expanse shall at last give way. That's how he speaks of And then he speaks about that he comes now for God has taken birth and the discus of Vishnu and rings the earth. Lo, it comes at last, the day foreseen of old, what John in Patmos saw, what Shelley dreamed, vision and vain imagination deemed, the city of delight, the age of gold. And then he speaks very beautifully that what will be that state, what will be that hour. Of course, in the hour of God he speaks about it, that uh, uh, a whirlwind and a tempest, a treading of the winepress of the wrath of God. So he speaks about it in that poem and he says that uh, how these iron chains, uh, how the nations will be shaken by the coming of this new age. They'll be shaken in their bases. The mother said, no, the uh, old bases will be shaken. It is one of those hours. And then man, free from within, will lift a fair and brow. And then in that, uh, it's a very beautiful poem actually. Uh, we could almost, uh, if you have collected poem, those, we can just, just two, three minutes, you know, those passages are very powerful and they're prophetic. And what you have touched that, it really deals with those passages and um, so we'll just uh, read this last line last uh, page it's a long passage long poem in the moonlight Page 55. Oh, strange. We just open and there's the page which comes. <laughs> what is this hour, you know, through which we are passing? This hour of transformation. And we are sometimes distraught with the appearances. And what are these appearances? Why the earth is shaken? Uh, he rises now. For God has taken birth. The revolutions that pervade the world are faint beginnings and the discus hurled of Vishnu speeds down to entering the earth. The old shall perish, it shall pass away. You see, the full tone is prophetic. You know, people speak about prophecies of Nostradamus. When you read this, it's a very powerful prophetic tone. The old shall perish, it shall pass away, expunged, annihilated, blotted out, and all the iron bands that ring about, man's wide expansion shall at last give way. 
freedom, God, immortality, the three are one and shall be realized at length, love, wisdom, justice, joy and utter strength gather into a pure felicity. It comes at last, the day foreseen of old, what John in Patmos saw, what Shelley dreamed, vision and vain imagination deemed, the city of delight, the age of gold. And now see these lines, the iron age is ended. What a line, you know, it's like direct, terse, powerful. There is no like beating around the bush. The iron age is ended. Only now, the last fierce spasm of the dying past, which we see, you know, it's the dying past. The last fierce spasm of the dying past shall shake the nations. And when that has passed, earth washed of ills shall raise a fairer brow, shaking the nations. This is man's progress for the Iron Age, prepared the age of gold, what we call sin. So what is sin? Man is, you know, people say loss of values, this, that, sin, all kinds of things. So what, what is sin in eyes of God? <laughs> what we call sin is but man's leavings as from deep within, the pilot guides him in his pilgrimage. The shadow we cast behind as we march forward is sin. It is not the light that leads. It is the shadow which is cast. So naturally, you know, it is going to be left and as we move. He leaves behind the ill with strife and pain. You know, there is the other aspect. So much strife, pain, struggle. He leaves behind the ill with strife and pain because it clings and constantly returns. That's why there is a sense of strife and pain. Because it clings and constantly returns and in the fire of suffering fiercely burns, more sweetness to deserve, more strength to gain. That's why we, we have a great adversary. We should not feel bad about it. It means God thinks us worthy of meeting the great challenge. What is the use of having minor challenges? So he has given an adversary which is as great in its power, almost, you know, as the divine strength within us. And we have to live with that sense. That is why in the divine worker, Sri says that thy smile within my heart makes all my strength indifferent to the time snake's crawling length. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Thy smile within my heart. Thy presence, no power can slay my soul. It lives in thee. Thy presence is my immortality. He rises to the good with tightened wings and this is the reason of his high unease. Because he came from the infinities to build immortally with mortal things. This is the word given to us. To build immortally with mortal things. And if you see from that way, what a wonderful divine project on which we are working for. 
millenniums and now he has just made us conscious that look this is the project I have given you the work of works and it immediately changes the whole perspective and gives you so much of joy that at least he thought us worthy of making us conscious of being in divine.com <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Divine network. <laughs> Networking solutions. <laughs> yes, yes. Divine.com. Uh, Sitaram is asking if you can tell, tell us the story of Mandavya. Okay, uh, there is one of the stories which uh, there are many stories of Mandavya. One of them, which is an evolutionary tale, uh, it, it's about uh, Mandavya was a sage, and uh, one of the story it goes that uh, while he was sitting in his hermitage and in his uh, meditation, uh, well, a few thieves. Uh, we are running away after robbing some precious things from the king's palace. And uh, it so happened that the king's uh, retinue, you know, they were chasing the robbers. And these robbers, as they were passing, uh, running away, they saw Mandavya's hut and they thought this is a nice place to hide the precious things and we will see the rest later. So they dropped the things in his hut and ran further. The, the the king's uh, subjects, they came there and they saw those jewels and they took Pandavya to be a thief and they thought that he is the one who has stolen and he is sitting and quietly meditating and trying to make a fool of us. So they uh, took him, uh, they accosted him to the king's palace and they told king, we have caught the robber who has stolen your jewels. And the king, without even looking at who the person is, he said, yes, execute him as per the standard laws, which is a typical symbol of the world, because in this world, mechanical laws govern all alike. So, the, the well, execute him as per the law. So, the law those days in that kingdom was that, okay, if you, have, you are a robber, if you have done a crime all night, you will sleep on a bed of uh, nails which amounted to saying that I kill you slowly. So Mandavya was also placed on the nail, bed of nails, and in the morning when they came to see that he must be either dead or bleeding to death, they saw that this man was sitting on that bed of nails and meditating. So the thieves were, uh, the, the king's uh, sepoys and courtiers were all aghast. So they ran to king and said, this is something strange, and we don't know who is this, what kind of robber is he. So when the king came himself to inspect and he saw the sage Mandavya, he fell at his feet and said, I am so sorry, this is a mistake. So Mandavya got up and began to move away. So the king again said, Sir, I am really sorry, please forgive me. So Mandavya said, Sorry for what and forgive you for what? So he said, Well, I am the one who has made you sleep on this bed of nail for the whole night. And Mandavya is reported to have said, Oh, you! You are so powerful! <laughs> so, he said, Yes, sir, I have. Uh, I am the one who has done it. He says, Well, don't bother about it. Uh, you are not the one who has the capacity to make me sleep on the bed of nails. 
So he says, but then what is it? And where are you going? He says, I am going to meet death, the guardian of the cosmic law. He said, what for? He said, I want to ask him why I was fated to sleep on a bed of nails for a whole night because unless the keeper of the law of this, uh, you know, the triple world, which death is the guardian of that law, he would permit, you are nobody, you are just an instrument. <laughs> you think you are king and executioner, uh, I don't believe in all that, you know. I, <laughs> so he goes and meets death and asks why I was made to sleep on a bed of nails. So it says, oh, few births back you had, uh, you know, pierced a butterfly wings with a needle. So Mandavya says, what? For such a small thing done in ignorance, such a big punishment? What kind of law is this? So he takes his power of tapasya and says, with all my tapas, may this law change. So it was like one example of changing the law by the power of tapasya because it's an absurd law. You know, it's a disproportionate law. The karmic law cannot be like this. So Mandavya in that sense was a great sage. He was an evolutionary sage. And I suspect Sri must have been, you know, or at some point he must have identified with the consciousness of Mandavya because uh, there are a series of meditations of Mandavya which he wrote and each one is very powerful. One he writes in a state where he says uh, about love, what kind of love one should have for the divine. And he says, easy is the love which loves with return for return of favors in the shopman heart. He who tortured takes and gives the kiss. He alone loves. He talks about, of course, love for the divine as is evident in the poem. And another place, you know, all the doubts that Mandavya raises in his head about the divine. So I, I suspect, I mean, obviously Shurabindo must have identified with that consciousness. Is it in the collected? Uh, it's uh, in the collected, perhaps. So that's one of the interesting stories of Mandavya, <laughs> where he changes the law. It is right in line with Shurabindo. Shurabindo also changes the law. And for the law, changing the law, he must first suffer the law. Mm -hmm. So Mandavya first goes through the pain of the law. And then he changes the law. He who would bring the heavens must descend himself into clay and the burden of earthly nature bear and tread the dolorous way. The law of earthly evolution under ignorance that death must be, ignorance must be upon earth, that as embodied beings we have to live bound by the ego and only as disembodied being we can pass out of the circle of the ego. So that is the earthly law so far and as far as uh, embodied beings are concerned they had a choice only between the tamasic, rajasic or the sattvic ego. Uh, even when a person sat in trance and in some kind of a state of trance, he experienced or realized some state of the divine on nature stops. Still when he came back as an embodied being, he had to live within the circle of the ego. He was not utterly free and that is why even in Buddhist Nirvana we have Nirvana and Mahanirvana. 
so so long as you have a body you will be bound by a subtle ego there is no way that you can be free from the ego it's only when you finally cast yourself uh, beyond death beyond life um, into another state of consciousness that you can be free from the ego sense now as long as you are bound by the ego sense that means you cannot have divine life upon earth you are bound by death you are bound by suffering so sure when the challenge is at law and he challenges it right to its utmost limits right up to the physical that nothing should be bound to ignorance nothing should be claimed by the ego or by the inconscient all must be reclaimed for the divine but for that he himself has to go through pain suffering death and all the problems that human existence means so changing the law is changing the law of evolutionary progression upon earth Uh, till now earth was a field of the ego and through ego you moved from grosser to subtler ego levels till you came to a point where the ego was thin enough and you could you could catapult yourself after death into a state of non birth but now the possibility is that on earth as embodied beings we can be free from the ego and ignorance not only in some deep part of our consciousness but eventually even in the very stuff of our body so it's a very very radical change kind of change not even envisaged